Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grilling JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? I'm good, Conrad. I'm sporting my new shirt today. Oh, I see that. Slobberknocker AF. You can get that yeah, over baby. at awshop.com, right? Yeah. And uh, it's pretty cool. I had had a new shirt in a long time. So I just decided to design one. Well, nothing wrong with that. I got, I had consultation though, from a guy that's very involved in the show today, Steve <laughs> Austin. He's my, he's my t-shirt, uh, go to among other things. Uh, he so knows he, a thing or two about that now. So I, I had it, uh, I had it designed and he gave me some pointers here and there. And so you keep it simple. Black's a bestseller. So here we are. So everything's good. I'm, I, I'm, I'm good. Conrad, that I'm enjoying, uh, a few days off. We start back, uh, taping or going live on, uh, Saturday night. I think what is the 24th, 26th, I think 26th. Okay. So got a, got a few days off. That's nice. It's nice to be nice to be stuck in Florida, stuck in Florida on the damn beach. Oh, it's just terrible. Sun. Oh shit. Punishment. How much can I really, how really how much can a man endure or we're going to find out, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So this should be a good one. Very pivotal King of the ring. As you mentioned earlier, before we were on the air. It's, it's arguably the most important King of the ring of all time. I mean, I think it is, you know, certainly you made other guys with the King of the ring concept, but you know, Brett, by the time he won King of the ring had already been world champion and, you know, Owen winning it was, uh, was certainly, uh, well-deserved. But he didn't go on to like these crazy heights. And then there's the whole King Mabel thing. And now man, we're, we're cooking with gas. Of course, originally there were plans for another winner. Uh, another reason why I think this is arguably the most important one, but let's talk about it. I can't believe it. It's the 25th anniversary of this show. We, we need to sort of set the table, Jim, and I'm sure you're tired of talking about it. I think we all are, but this. This show really gets started at the curtain call. We've covered it in the archives and, uh, I believe that was even our second show that we ever did together, but at the raw tapings after in your house, beware of dog, uh, and before the second beware of dog show, because as we'll recall, there was a power outage and I did uh, sort of a do over on Tuesday, the build for the king of the ring begins with qualifying matches and unbelievably Jake Roberts beats triple H to qualify. Meltzer would write Jake pinned Hunter in 1030 after a DDT and Roberts put the snake on triple H after the match as well. The result was almost certainly punishment for the incident at Madison square garden on June 19th, where Helmsley, Michaels, diesel and razor Ramon did the curtain call in the ring after the show violating cafe big time. There was a sizable amount of internal heat regarding the wrestlers doing it. And even though the majority of fans had left before Michaels finished his post-match routine. It was mainly the hardcores left who liked it anyway, since they couldn't punish diesel or Ramon since they're leaving. And Michaels is the company's golden boy and top draw. It's Helmsley. Who was the one who was made the example out of now, a few years prior to this, I don't think anybody would have thought losing the Jake Roberts was some sort of punishment, but in 96, that's certainly the way a lot of people felt about it. How'd you feel about it? Well, it was. I think a reprimand type thing you could say maybe, uh, but there was some, some punishment involved in it, I guess. 
uh, I think not, not the Jake, uh, putting Jake over. It was the fact that he Hunter was going to win it. Right. And he, and, uh, that had been planned and his natural step in his maturation creatively. So that got taken and, uh, all of those guys going to bid us for themselves. You know, I, Hey, everybody looks at things differently, man. And I, I thought it was, uh, a lack of institutional control. Quite frankly, uh, the guy shouldn't have done it in my view, but they loved each other so much. They had to say goodbye. It was the garden. It was bullshit. That's what it was. Oh, the hardcores thought it was cool. What all eight of them. <laughs> so, so come on. Uh, I wonder how I'm not even going to go. No, no, uh, how, you can't tease us like that. What were we thinking? Well, how, they're so, they're so, uh, indebted to each other. And so they're such great friends. I wonder how often they talk down. Right. Was it, so my point is, was it really that big a deal or was it just for them to show their defiance that they could do what they wanted when they wanted because of who we were. And you got to blame Vince for a lot of that. Cause he let it get, he, he let it slip a lot of that shit slip by, you know, at this uh, point, are you, are you Vince McMahon's right-hand man yet? I mean, I don't he, think so. Okay. No, no, I, I was not, but I could have stopped it. If I was his right hand, left-hand man, his ambidextrous man, that's what they wanted to do. And, and Vince, uh, was gonna, you know, support those guys. Sometimes bookers, owners, whatever can be too gracious yep. in their quest to be talent friendly. I thought that was an example of that. <laughs> and, uh, so after all these years, so you said 25 years. Yeah. Uh, I don't, it's, it, it's it, it, the only thing that keeps that alive is people like you and me, quite frankly. So, but in any event, it did tie into the story we're telling today. And certainly was a catalyst for the change in creative direction. And by a stroke of luck, uh, we backed into a good one when, uh, Stone Cold was the winner. It, it worked and it worked everlastingly long-term wise, good launch, good awareness for Stone Cold. And, uh, there we went all the, the stars seemed to realign as that night went along. Talk to me a little bit about talent friendly. Use that phrase a minute ago that sometimes owners or bookers or what have you can sometimes be talent friendly to their detriment. Um, I don't know if that's always been the rap on Vince McMahon is, is this newfound, um, I, I don't know, feel good. Vince McMahon necessary because now nitro is a thing. WCW has got some real money behind it and, and, and they're trying to make a new move or is it more based on, uh, Hey, we're not able to, I, I don't know. I've always been fascinated by the Shawn Michaels, Vince McMahon relationship. And I'm right. trying to dig into was cause it feels like he had a great relationship once upon a time with Hogan and his other top guys. But I don't know that he would have just acquiesced to anything that a Brett or a Mabel or a, you know, a flair or whoever else was champ sort of in between. Talk me through that. Is it, is it born out of necessity with, with WCW on the rise? Somewhat born out of uh, necessity, but as I said before, you know, uh, Vince and Sean have always had that 
a, a strong bond and it's, uh, bonded together with, uh, the fact that Vince saw a little bit of himself as far as de being defiant, attitudinal, that type thing with Sean. So, uh, they were connected in, in that respect, even though I've, you know, they've had, they had great arguments and, uh, any argument. Great. It was, they had ar significant arguments. Uh, but I just think Vince just had a, for whatever reason, he just had a special affinity for Shawn Michaels. And it just might've been Conrad God forbid this could be this, the, the fact that he was arguably the, the, the number one or number two worker in the world at that time. Yeah. And, uh, we have built so much around Sean and rightfully so. I mean, God dang, he's, he, he, he was great. Uh, and you know, and I'm glad he's still there in the company. You know, he can, he can help a lot of people. I'm not sure that he does, but I, I thought that that thing of the garden was just a kind of selfish, you know, it was, uh, we're going to defy tradition. We're going to, we're going to turn our back on uh kayfabe. Right. In this very world's most famous arena, because we want to, and we can, and a lot of the other guys that I heard from were, uh, not happy about it. Uh, just, they, I guess they, you know, essentially as they would say in Oklahoma, so a lot of the talents just thought that Sean and those guys got too big for their britches and, uh, they, they, uh, flaunted it. So, but I, I think this, he also saw that, you know, the WCW element becoming more prominent that, you know, we needed to be more talent friendly, but I think that starts, that's not just the top guys. You should be talent friendly to everybody. And, uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I don't think that it was a, it was just a, I think that's Aaron judgment all the way around everybody involved. Just uh, if they had, they, they would say because of their defiance. And their independence and the fact they've made a lot of money and mailbox money and they saved their money, I guess <clears throat> they, they just had a, a belief that they could get away with anything. And so then that led to this King of the ring where Hunter, who had we planned on being the next King of the ring, uh, was, uh, taken out of that equation because of what happened at the garden. So, you know. And a lot of people disagree, will disagree with me on this deal. You know, look, Kevin Nash is one of my best friends. I like Kevin a lot. I've known him forever. I got him on my radio show that we air here on the ad free network. Yeah. Like it drops on Fridays. Kevin was a frequent guest. I had always had a lot of time for Kevin and I still do. Uh, but I think, you know, Vince saw, well, we lost these two guys. They're leaving. And, uh, maybe I need to tweak my, uh, PR game a little bit with talent. So, but did he turn over a brand new leaf? Not really. He just became more aware of talent's needs and the changing philosophies of a lot of talents in that era. The business was changing and this was one of those significant changes. Did you think the business was changing? I'm not saying that to be funny, but I think sometimes a, a guy like you, who's been around, uh, he could say, well, no, the same thing draws. It's always drawn. You need a protagonist and an antagonist and a good story, but you got to have a, you know, a hot heel and blah, blah, blah. It feels like, you know, some of the formulas of what's worked in wrestling for decades 
that didn't change, but a lot of people felt like, you know, oh no, it's all different now. It's shades of gray. Where, where did you land on that? Well, I never was a big shades of gray guy. I think you're overthinking the business and trying to reinvent something that's already established. Uh, I thought the business was changing somewhat in the, in the attitudes of the talents and the fact that the, uh, online stuff started to have creep in and have a little effect, uh, on, uh, communication, but I didn't ever think that we we're going to deviate so far away from, well, we don't need baby faces. We don't need heels because that's too wrestling, too wrestling. That was, that was one of the best of deals. I'm sure you heard that others. Yeah. Too wrestling. I never really agreed with that. So, uh, but the business is changing in a lot of little subtle ways. And the, but the primary one was in my, just in my opinion, yeah, was how, how you interacted with talent and that you need to communicate closer with talent, allow talent to express themselves hmm. and to participate in their creative. The smart business there is that once one does that, the talent would then make a more emotional investment, uh, to get their creative over if they've had any hand at all, uh, of significance. Uh, to create their own, uh, creative journey. So I think we all learned something there in that regard. So maybe at the end of the day, the curtain call wasn't the, it certainly wasn't the end of the earth. It was just a stark departure from the traditions that the business had been fostering, uh, long before I got into it in the seventies. I'm curious when, when you're sort of running through, um, all of that, you said some, something like, well, that's when the internet started to, so the idea is all of a sudden as the, as the internet grows and technology grows, there starts to be more coverage of the professional wrestling business online. That's certainly the case here in 96. You were with Vince a lot longer than 96. Of course, though, I'm fascinated to hear Did you ever once in your life hear Vince McMahon say something like, what's the internet think of this? Or what are people saying online about this? No. Yeah. No, it was out there. I was aware of it. You know, uh, a lot of us read Melcher's, uh, observer. Uh, I know Bruce and I both did. And there are a lot of others, Ed Cohen who did the buildings. Uh, and Howard was the key guy. Howard was the town crier with all that that kept everybody aware of what the, what was being said online in case we missed it. And oftentimes we did miss it because there's an awful lot of things being said. So, uh, but Vince will get downloads. Oh, by the way, Vince, this is, uh, this is online. This is the hot rumor today or whatever. Uh, but you know, he never, not at least to me, he did, uh, wouldn't talk about it occasionally. But, uh, especially when something leaked that we knew came from a talent, you know, that's, that's just disheartening when things leaked and it comes from one of the participants in the equation, not cool. So that happened a few times, but no, he was not a, I'm sure he's a, a more aware of it now because digital and the internet and all the, the sites and everything that's out there, people make, trying to make a living off pro wrestling. Uh, through their sites and their hits and all that stuff, uh, are, is very prominent more than ever. So uh, I, but he was, he, he, he didn't overreact to the internet. 
we just were all aware that it was there. And then a lot of our own people were talking. This same taping where Hunter loses to Jake, we see Steve Austin defeat Bob Holly to qualify. Owen Hart beats Yokozuna and the ultimate warrior and Goldust go to a 15 minute draw. Vader defeats Ahmed Johnson. Mark Merrow defeats skip. So Austin's run to the top starts with beating Bob Holly and, uh, Owen pins Yoko and warrior and, and, and Goldust go into a 15 minute draw. I mean, Dustin Rhodes could do 60. I'm sure, but warrior in a 15 minute match. I, yeah. I, what's the thinking here? <laughs> Don't beat him. Yeah. Can't beat him. There you go. He can't lose. Well, I see. the warrior's not a good enough worker to know how to lose and protect himself. So you eliminated two guys there. And the fact also that, you know, we were building gold dust and we thought gold dust had uh, a significant upside and he did, but you didn't want to, they didn't just didn't want to beat him in that environment. So they did the draw and. It, it, it Golda should, he should have been bonused on his paycheck for that one to go 15 minutes of warrior. And, yeah. uh, I, I, I completely forgotten about that match. So maybe that's, maybe there's a reason why maybe it wasn't very good. I don't remember. You usually block out painful experiences, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Vader would beat Ahmed here. Uh, we, we sort of glossed over that match, but that's Ahmed's first ever pinfall loss in the company. But afterwards is when the real story happens. Uh, Goldust gives him CPR. And then when Ahmed wakes up, he freaks out and, uh, it's a hell of a scene in hindsight. Do you think that angle was in bad taste or, or should we ju- always judge, but wrestling by the context it's in? Yes. The yeah. latter. Yeah. It, it was a element added by I'm sure by Pat Patterson who loved the ha ha. Right. He loved the ha ha. So, uh, it added some light, a lighthearted element to, uh, to that matter. And, uh, I don't, I don't know if it was necessary or not Did it kill the show. Of course not. No. Uh, but it was, well, I'll tell it, you, it that, was a hot finish. I mean, seeing Ahmed drive that dude through the door, that's a hell of a visual. Yeah. Well, uh, here's the thing you get, you get into these matches, these tournaments like this, and you know, the office picks out the participants. They want to be in the, uh, King of the ring. Right. And then you find yourself, well, we can't beat this guy. We don't want to beat this guy. We don't, somebody's got to win and lose here. Yeah. Why do we book it? Yeah. And I, that's the, uh, and that's the way it is today. You know, I, I, I believe that any top talent should be able to lose to another talent with that talent's finish. Sure. If, if you can't lose to somebody's finish, what have we created? Right. It, it, it's a, uh, you're just in a box now. So I, I, uh, I always liked the fact that, you know, working with the watch, those guys that you come up with a way. And I remember even a, a good old Leroy McGurk back in the day would always tell guys, you know, when you come to work, you got to have a, and watch this big proponent of this too, that when you come to work, you got to have an idea of how to lose, how to win and how to work a, 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 a return. Have something in your head that you want to do. And now the business is, is such where a lot of talent seemingly to me, just, uh, leave it all up to the office. 
so some some are not participating in it uh, from the emotional investment aspect, and that's kind of what this deal was. I can promise you, very few guys came to work with the idea of how they wanted to win or lose or or work or return. So, but you, you, they sometimes you book yourself into a corner, and I want to say inadvertently, but you know you got to have a, when you book the match, you know you got to have a finish. That's right, some sort. So. I think that's kind of where we were with that deal. A lot of guys are in the protected area where you didn't want to beat them because the a lot of the talents themselves over the years had made it clear that, you know, if I lose, you're killing me. So your work must be shit. You really must not be over then. I can't lose. If you're that, uh, if it's that fragile, then we're doing something really wrong here where we've got a talent, a position where if he or she loses one match, you've killed them. And, uh, and a lot of talents Hunter had on that Conrad, they, oh, I'm, I, I'm not going to get over you. You beat me every night. So all of a sudden it goes from losing tonight. Oh, you're beating me every night. Yeah. No, we're not. No, we're not. So, uh, and, and I like to see, I like to see that change a little bit, but in any event, it was a dawning task to figure out these finishes so that some talents could be protected. Uh, and it was just awkward to say the very least. Well, we're building towards, uh, mankind versus the undertaker, and they're going to have one hell of a summer. We're also building Shawn Michaels versus Davy boy in a rematch. And how about this classic, the ultimate warrior versus Jerry, the King Lawler. On raw, we would see one of the worst appearances warrior ever had, instead of being the crazy wild man persona that we'd always seen, he comes out wearing a baseball hat when Jerry Lawler is here to present him with a framed painting that he said he did. And warrior said he acknowledged that it took a lot of time, but he's going to kick his ass at King of the ring. And then of course, Lawler flipped the painting around and hit warrior over the back of the head where the glass went out. So not one chance of glass going into warrior's head, but still warrior felt the need to not only wear the cap, but friend of the show, TJ Wilson says he even had a pad inside the cap, or at least that's what he right. heard. No, he did. He, the hat was like a helmet for protection. Cause we all know that warrior's smarter than all of us. And he had, had it all figured out. Uh, and he's also defiant. He's paranoid, right? He felt like, yeah, it's to say the least. I, I just don't understand. I mean, has there ever been, listen, there's probably plenty of criticism to go around for Jerry Lawler, but has anybody ever heard that Jerry Lawler was, oh, Jerry's going to stiff me. Jerry's going to hurt me. I've never heard that once in my life. Me neither. And he never did. Uh, you know, I said this Conrad Lawler's one of the best workers ever. Yes. Ever. And, uh, the fact that he had never hurt anybody is much like Brett, those guys that were supreme workers and they were dedicated to their craft, took huge amounts of pleasure in the fact that they did hurt their, their dancing partners, right? Their, their opponents. Lawler was one of those guys. Uh, but you know, yeah, par paranoid is, is a, a good way to describe the ultimate warrior. And, uh, you know, we've, he's had a lot of exposure the last several weeks yeah. on, uh, on TV, the documentaries and things of that nature.
So yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, an interesting show to book and, uh, if I enjoyed calling it because uh, at the time, you know, you never know how significant any show is going to be until it's over. But when that show was over, we knew that we had accomplished something very good. The, uh, the audible that was called regarding triple H not winning actually worked out the best for everybody involved at the end of the day. Just capital is a nonprofit that tracks, which companies are a force for good companies like bank of America, which just earned the just capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like sharing success, which awarded 97% of their teammates, additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about Bradshaw defeating uh, Henry Godwin. Savio Vega is going to qualify on Superstars for King of the Ring by defeating Marty Jannetty. And now we're off to the quarterfinals. Uh, Steve Austin pins his old rival, Savio Vega. Uh, and uh, now... We're, uh, we're really starting to look like Steve Austin's going to be in here for the long haul. You, you sort of talked earlier about, well, the decision was made not to go with Hunter. Did you immediately pivot to Austin or is there some discussion about who it could have been instead? Well, you look at the roster Conrad and you say, who can we help the most by, by them facilitating a King of the ring win, right? Who needs it the most? Who needs that, that, that impetus to step forward to me, uh, Austin was the obvious answer. He was starting to build momentum. He was turning heads. People were starting to pay attention to him. Uh, he'd found his own character. He was refining it. His work was solid as hell and believable. So, uh, you know, I, I, to me, Steve, there were probably going to be other guys as candidates, no doubt. But I think Steve was the obvious candidate and it was the right thing to do to, to put him over at the end of the day. So, uh, Mark Miro is going to defeat Owen Hart to move into the semifinals and, uh, Jake Roberts will defeat Bradshaw with the DDT at the same time. There's rumors of issues with the one, two, three kid, Sean Waltman, you know, obviously you're not a psychiatrist or therapist or whatever, where do you think Waltman's head was at this time? Since he's watching Hunter being punished and Scott and Kevin leaving for WCW, he's probably a little, uh, uh, you know, a little detached, you know, Sean had, uh, <coughs> those guys took Sean under their wing and he became one of their guys. Uh, so he had a close relationship with the uh, Hunter and Sean all that crew. So I'm sure he was a little, uh, for Klimt, as they used to say, I like that. And, uh, and, and it, sometimes those triggers can then arise 
as it was as it would relate to increased substance abuse and uh when you're you're, you're uh, in that world anyway it doesn't you know you want to keep a guy straight and clean and healthy sure healthy uh sometimes the sugars can evolve from different places conrad so uh it wasn't a good scenario for Sean and I've always been, I'm still a Sean Waltman, uh, supporter. And I know he's got a, a podcast. Yes, he does. And then it does good. And, and I'm happy for him. I love the kid. He's cleaned himself up. He got more than one second chance. <coughs> so nice. Uh, but I, I, I'm sure it was a little disconcerting for Sean at that time. Cause Sean was, was, was one of those guys that would have thought that the curtain call probably was the right thing to do. I don't know that, but attitudinally and the business is changing. We got to change with it type deal, but we don't have to change it so much. that we're going to take people into the magician's house and see how he makes a rabbit disappear. Right. I didn't think that was quite necessary. So I'm sure it was a, a, a it was a point of consternation for Sean and, and, uh, because He's seen two of his best friends leave. He's got another good friend in triple H who just got punished by not winning the king of the ring. So then all of a sudden winning the king of the ring was a huge deal. Yeah. It was made to be a huge deal. Oh, it should have been, that shouldn't have happened. He's the only one who got punished. And I didn't see Sean jumping into place to help Hunter. It was all of a sudden the, the ship the deck of the ships are to get more sparse. So anyway, I, I'm sure it affected Sean because he's a sensitive guy. He's loyal. And, uh, like I said, I've always had a lot of time for him. One of my favorite guys, by the way, if you've got a lot of time for him, check out his new podcast that Jim referenced. It's pro wrestling for life. Uh, Sean Waltman and a friend of the show, Nick Houseman are doing a good job over there and I even did an appearance. So check that out. It's uh, pro wrestling for life. Let's, oh, uh, cool. let's keep it going. Talk about your other pal, uh, the late great Brian Pillman. He yep. signed to a three-year deal here coming off his run in WCW. He started this loose cannon character over there, sprinkled a little bit in ECW. And now he's here, although he's fresh off of surgery, uh, from that Humvee accident. Obviously you're familiar with Brian. We've recently talked about him a good deal here on the show. But in hindsight, should we have waited until he had a clean bill of health to bring him in? Do you think, um, uh, I guess in hindsight, sure. I guess what sure. I'm saying is, are we getting caught up in the whole WCW boy? We got to win thinking. Well, that certainly played a part Conrad. I'm not going to deny that, but we always felt that Brian was a, was a diamond in the rough. Yeah. And we also didn't know, uh, you know, the the timeline for him to get healthy. I also don't know that we knew exactly how severely injured his ankle was from the standpoint of it getting fused and him not being able to do some of the things athletically that he didn't have to spring off that leg, things of that nature. But we looked at Brian as not a one tool guy, right? We looked at him as a a guy that could do a lot of things. I, I envisioned, uh, another Jesse Ventura like character mm. with Brian, 
where he could be a great asset on the mic as a broadcaster and really lighten that whole role up and be controversial and be timely and topical, all those things. Or he could have been a manager and not in the true sense of Mr. Fuji manager, but a, a more updated manager role. Sure. So, uh, I don't know that we, if he was only a one dimensional guy, the signing him at the time that we did probably might've been a little premature, but knowing the fact that we had several potential, uh, roles for him to fill, it didn't seem too early. It is interesting though, if, if you and I were to take a look at this as a, as a trade, right? Sort of like what you would see in traditional sports, you're essentially trading Scott Hall and Kevin Nash for Brian Pillman. And on paper, that doesn't seem to be a fair and equitable trade, but I guess, you know, obviously this isn't regular sports and there's a lot more in play and the finances aren't exactly equal, but speaking of finances, how about this? The WBF is going to run a house show at the Rosemont horizon and they're going to draw $229,222. And that's the largest house for a non-pay-per-view wrestling event in Chicago since 91. And that's back when they had Ric Flair versus Hulk Hogan on top for the very first time. The main event here is Sean versus Goldust with a really strong undercard warrior versus Vader and taker versus mankind. And it looks like King of the ring in Milwaukee is even trending to be a sellout after a couple of really tough years, 94 and 95 with a fresh, uh, with a fresh coat of paint here, Sean Michaels is doing big business for you guys, isn't he? Well, yeah, but he's not working acapella, right? Of course, Sean Michaels is doing big business for us because he's, he or flair were considered the two best in the world. Uh, but some of the other guys are starting to get over. You know, you notice that, uh, Sean Michaels didn't work by himself in, in the, in the Rosemont. No, uh, he worked with gold dust. That character started to get over and other characters started getting over. So our rebuild and a reboot for a lot of the talent there, uh, you know, I think when Scott and Kevin left, it was just a good tap on the shoulder to, uh, Vince that we needed to get younger. We needed to get more athletic. You know, we needed to do a lot of things to, to, to restore the vitality and the youth to some degree of our locker room. And, uh, so I think that it kind of led to all, all that stuff, you know, uh, but the thing about the Rosemont show, you had, you had taker versus mankind versus bunny. Yeah. And you had Sean and Goldust. Sean was money mm-hmm. and Goldust. Uh, started to come into his own. That Goldust character, I mean, oh, o- Dustin owned that thing. Yes. He, he put a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of himself into that character. And, and maybe that was done somewhat out of defiance, too, because the Goldust character is nothing that Booker, Father, Dusty Rhodes would ever have done with his son. Right. And Dustin did it and did it well. Because he, he was a little defiant and was going to show pops that I can, I, I can do anything. So whether that be true or not, it doesn't matter. If you believe it, it matters. So I think a lot of guys are starting to get over, but to your point about Sean, Sean being able to be the focal point 
was probably was great timing, whether it was intentional or not, it was great timing. And I, and he, he, he seemed to have a thirst for the responsibility of being quote unquote, the top guy. I'm interested in, in what changed between Brett and Sean. I mean, sometimes people just say, oh, well, wrestling's a cyclical business and we'll table that for now, but it does feel like Sean Michaels may have just been sort of an old school baby face. You've talked before about how, you know, back in the territory days, you needed a good looking baby face. He's sort of responsible for drawing the women. Did you no. feel like the audience was changing a little bit that Sean was more effective in drawing the women in than, than any other WWE champion in recent history. Well, that's how he was marketed. The, the visuals, the posters, the, uh, you know, the videos and all those things were bracketed and, and, uh, around that. So, uh, to, to play off all his skills and all of his resources and all of his assets. Uh, so it, it wasn't overly surprising. Good looking guy. Sure. Great body. He's over had loads and loads and loads of charisma. So, uh, yeah, but I think we just basically try to underscore that. And so instead of just showing only his super kicks and, and his stuff in the ring, we, sh- we were showing things, uh, like outtakes of photo shoots and things of that nature, cause he was very photogenic and he did, a, a, he appealed to the defiant young guys who wanted to be like him. And he certainly appealed to the ladies. And I think uh, that was smart marketing by Vince and company. Let's keep it going here. And let's talk about, uh, that warrior Vader match from that show quote. They had done 20 second squashes all weekend, somewhat because Vader had a bad hip and more because warrior shoulder is messed up. I guess because the crowd was so big or because Helwig was unappreciative or because of all the pins are getting so much press in Japan or whatever. But Vader took his clotheslines and then walked out as he got to the back officials basically told him if he didn't walk back in, he might as well walk all the way back to Colorado and not come back. He got back in the ring and did the match, but ended up walking out again for the count out rather than the pin. right now, there are no plans to push him until the fall and they want him to drop weight first. So we've talked about Vader in the archives, but this is some old school stuff here. Is it not? Yeah. And Vader was, uh, Leon was very gifted as we know. And I uh, was a big, always a big proponent of Leon's cause I was one of the guys that was responsible for bringing he and Hanson into WCW back in the day. So I always, I love that big monster heel, uh, persona. Yeah. But, uh, Leon is one of those guys that was easily convinced that if I do jobs, it's going to hurt me in Japan. Right. You know, screw Japan. I mean, come on, God damn. Oh, but Japan, this Japan, that, and you know, uh, I, if you want to protect your money, you shouldn't have come here. If that's a concern of yours, because you know that you're not going to get booked or signed to a contract that says I never lose. No. Uh, and, uh, so Leon's lucky that night. He did get fired really is. And, and a lot of bookers and, and unless tenuous times would have said, we'll see you were done. You, you, uh, if you can't lose, we can't, you can't win. So you figure that out. So I, I was, I think if we hadn't had the WCW thing going on and bubbling and bubbling, you know, Leon might've been uh, out 
And that would have been a terrible loss because oh, yeah. he, he was a killer heel and it got over it can, and, and all that good stuff. But the Japanese influence of some of those guys, they've actually believed that losing in a house show. So for example, in Rosemont would be detrimental to their Japanese career. I find that absurd. Really? I find it absurd. Are we kidding each other? So, uh, but Leon was lucky. He had, he, he got lucky that night and I'm not saying that his match was good or he didn't have reason or for, uh, being that defiant. Sure. Warrior wasn't easy to work with, but on paper, from a promoter standpoint, Vader versus warrior has some sizzle. It's interesting though. You know, he leaves WCW because he's probably. Well, a lot of reasons, but one of the things I'm sure is he's frustrated with the way he's booked against Hogan. <laughs> now here he is doing a string of matches where he's losing to the warrior in uh, a fraction of the time. Yeah. Well, it, it it's a, uh, it's, it, I guess he, I would say to Leon and I had a lot of heart to hearts with Leon over the years. Uh, and you know, I was the guy that picked him up at the airport with his son, Jesse. When Jesse was a high school senior coming in from, uh, Colorado to visit the Sooners, he had committed to UCLA and he came, he, they flew in Leon, as I found out in hindsight, had lost his driver's license, hmm. license suspended. So good old JR goes and picks him up at the airport and, uh, takes him to Norman, Oklahoma city, about 20 minutes. And then he, he decommitted to UCLA on his visit and committed to OU. He was a top rated center, high school center in America. Wow. Jesse white was like a five-star guy. And, uh, I always liked Jesse. Jesse's doing well in business. Listen, Dallas area, I think. Uh, so, uh, and a good kid, hey, really fr- good kid friend of the show. I don't know if you can see above me, but that's Vader's last mask and Vader's boots. And, uh, Jesse saw what we had going on here in my backdrop and he didn't sell them to me. He loaned them to me and said, Hey, can we show off some of my dad's stuff? Or I asked, Hey, can we show off some of your dad's stuff? And right above me there, one of my favorites, Vader's last mask and boots. Yeah. Uh, you know, Leon could be a pain in the ass, but I loved him. Yeah. He was our pain in the ass. And I just remember what Watts taught me back at the beginning, you know, uh, athletic big men draw money. Yeah. And the monster heel is a imperative element. Uh, and then you, uh, for a, for a booker to have at his disposal and looking at the fact that, uh, you know, uh, Sean Michaels was always going to be around 215, 220 pounds. Leon was not going to lose a lot of weight, whether we wanted him to or not. He was a huge human being. Right. So there are, now you got that great miss, uh, that advantage size advantage for your big monster heel coming after the gallant brave and true baby face. So it was all, it was logical, but Leon overthought, as I said, a lot of guys, not just Leon, uh, the Japanese did a good job of selling them that, you know, don't do, don't do, don't do jobs. Don't do too many jobs, just DQ count outs, all those things. So, and, and so I, I just say sometimes, well, you know, that's, that's not what's best for the company and you know, we need winners and losers here. So if you can't, if you can't lose then how can we justify, uh, you sending you out there, you've beaten everybody, even though you won't reciprocate, it's no, it made no sense. So that's kind of where we were there. That's why this King of the ring has so many unique twists and turns 
and, and how those twists and turns equated to, uh, major happenings going forward. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here and let's talk about some other talent shifts going on. Jim Neidhart is returning under a new gimmick who, and, uh, the gangsters in paradise, Samu and Matthew quit in a very short time. The body Donna's are going to be bringing in Jimmy shoulders, who is a Northeast indie wrestler dressed as a woman to be their new manager, cloudy. And, uh, they're in discussions with Ron Simmons about coming in as well. Talk to us about Jim Neidhart and the whole who gimmick. This feels like, uh, this is right out of the book of bad ideas. I think Vince Russo over the years has said that this was a Bruce Pritchard idea. Do you remember who I remember it? I don't remember it in a fond way that, well, that was my, that was one of the coolest moments we've ever done. I don't know who came up with the idea. Could have been Bruce, but it didn't matter. If it had worked and if it got over big, it would have been somebody else getting the credit. If it didn't work, then the, then Bruce is too close to the flames. It'll get burned a little bit. It's all happened to all of us. Sometimes every idea doesn't work well. And it's really, really easy to go back in time. Now, 25 years ago. And so, well, that, that wasn't a very good idea, but you don't know at the time you don't know. And, 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 you know, the, the thing about it was that. Vince is loyal to Neidhart and he wanted to give him work, but that was just a, I thought the gimmick was a little weak, quite frankly, but, uh, in any event, uh, Jimmy Neidhart got work. And I think that was really the, the, the bottom line of that whole situation. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Title Transference aired October 27, 2004. Director James Marshall, writers Todd Slavkin, Darren Swimmer. I really like this episode, and I'm surprised that you don't like it as much as you thought you did. I actually respect your opinion more than I respect my own in general. (laughs) (laughs) When you say things are good and I check them out, they are. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen. Uh, what about, uh, the body Donna's and this whole cloudy concept, obviously we're, we're doing a playoff Sonny, who is going to be one of the most downloaded women in, in all of the internet in 1996. So I get the idea of, Hey, let's sort of have an antagonist, but it's going to be a dude dressed up like a lady and we're going to call him cloudy. What do you think the cowboy thought of that creative? That's interesting. <laughs> huh? Okay, I was surprised Cowboy booked Adrian Street back in the day and playing off of the society's uh, unfortunate uh, issues with uh, homophobia because uh, that's what that was. Uh, I remember Bill Dundee suggesting Cowboy that Adrian beat Terry Taylor, who was pretty hot at the time in the Mid-South, uh, by kissing him. And uh, somehow or another, Cowboy went for it. And, uh, it was a shocking moment, but Taylor was so aghast that he got pinned, uh, before he could re- before he could respond or react, 
the one, two, three went down and Adrian became, I think the television champion. I'm not sure. I think that's what it was. Uh, you never know what Cowboy is going to agree to. If he feels like it's going to fit it'll, it'll, all those bookers are kind of field guys anyway. Right. So, uh, I, I'm not a big fan of these parodies, you know, uh, I remember, uh, and I, it's not parodies. I'm just trying to replace somebody where we tried every out, every seemingly endless string of very talented African-American males to replace JYD. And we went through a list. Nobody, nobody checked the boxes until we finally realized we already had the guy, Butch Reed. People believed in it and, uh, and we wanted the, the African-American fan base to, to know they're represented by a guy that's the tough son of a bitch and will fight anybody, anytime, anywhere. But we had to go through the process of the Brickhouse Browns and George Wells and, and all these cats uh, to see if we could find somebody. So I, I don't know. I, I, uh, I'm not big on the, on the re on the, on the rebrands. And I think that's where this, uh, thing, uh, cloudy business kind of came about. It just was, you know, come on. It's a little hokey. Don't you think? Uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, it, we, a lot of creative think, look, we're trying to figure out what's going to stick. And, and you know, it's again, it's easy. Well, that was never going to work. That's not going to work. Hey, I've been following the internet for six years. I would, I could, I know that I know wrestling. Well, you don't know if you're, if you're in that role, you are just trying to find something that's going to stick against the wall and sell tickets and, and garner TV ratings. That's what we were looking for. And we didn't know what was going to stick because the market continued to evolve and change. So, uh, that's kind of where we were there. I didn't, I, I went crazy about that idea personally, and it didn't last. Let's uh, talk about some other talent that you're bringing in. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about these guys, but you got some pretty capable fellows coming in. Tracy Smothers, uh, who you and I both loved over in WCW and Smokey yeah. Mountain. He's coming in as Freddie Joe Floyd. And I think my understanding is even the name Freddie Joe Floyd is a rib based on uh, your old pal, Mr. Briscoe. What can you tell us about Tracy coming in? Well, uh, I think Jack's uh, name was Freddie part of his name. Yeah. You know, Oklahoma, much like Alabama has front names, middle names, behind names, and yes. all these names, you know, uh, but it was a good hearted rib. Uh, and some of those guys were brought in were, were pretty damn good workers without question, but you know, you wonder, can they out, can they wrestle their way from, uh, mediocrity because of the gimmick? Bell to bell, they're going to be fine, but do I care about them? And if, if their gimmick and their persona prohibits me from really caring about them, then we've done no one any favors. Well, we get good matches, but they don't mean shit. Give me something that means something to the audience. And, uh, so that's kind of where we were there. I, I love Freddie Joe Floyd, uh, Floyd is Gerald Briscoe's front name. That's her first name. Yes, sir. Floyd Gerald and Freddie was Jack's. I'm not sure if it was his legal name or is this a kid, childhood nickname, but that was a Briscoe thing. And, uh, and Gerald was fine with it. I mean, 
who the hell would have known? Right. What Freddie Joe Floyd even was, what's the significance of that meant. So it, again, we were bringing in a lot of talent, hoping somebody would get over and their character would stick and would be resonate and be relatable. But, uh, I don't know. I, I again, we didn't make, we didn't do those guys, you know, the goon, all those cats. We didn't do anybody any favors. Some of these things on paper or around the table and laughing, it might've been cool, but in practical application, they could not get out of that box that says, uh, underneath guys report here because that's what they became. And they stayed that way. Tony Anthony is going to come in as a TL hopper. This is very much, uh, the, uh, what, what do we call it? Occupational gimmick era of the world wrestling federation. Uh, we've had a wrestling clown. Now we have a wrestling plumber. Yep. Well, again, it's just a theory that on the road we traveled, you know, I can't say it enough. It's fucking trying to find somebody to get over. Yeah. That's all. That's all. And the, the irony and the cruel irony in, in a sense is that guys like Tony Anthony and Tracy Smothers, uh, and, and some of those other cats that came in about that time all could work, but we didn't give them a gimmick or a persona that people could relate to or oh, everybody could relate to the plumber. Yeah. When's the last time you saw your fucking plumber? I couldn't pick mine out of a lineup. He's standing right there. Come on. Uh, so uh, that's kind of how I saw that. I, we gave him weak gimmicks for guys that could really work and, you know, under a different circumstance, uh, they might've got over with a different gimmick because it wasn't their work. That's one thing I want to make clear. You know, there's these guys got fans that listen to our show. I'm sure they may listen as well. Some of them are still with us, uh, but it was just a, it was a fait accompli. It wasn't a matter. Is it going to fail? It's just a matter of how long is it going to take for it to fail? And that's not good booking. Let's, uh, let's keep it going and talk about some other names because there's a lot of other talented fellows. Tom Brandy is going to come in as Salvatore sincere. Uh, Tom has, uh, been a journeyman wrestler who did quite well for himself over the years. what do you think of the Sal sincere character? Same as I thought about the others, it was disingenuous and unrealistic. And, and, and again, Tom is a really good worker. But you get saddled with a certain gimmick and a certain persona and an image, and it's, it's hard to live down, but, uh, you know, he was, I'm not sure what he was supposed to represent. That's some Italian, cool, handsome guy. I guess I'm not sure we're vague in that regard, but he was a good hand, but he had a shitty gimmick. Uh, but we were, we were doing our best. All those guys we've talked about that we brought in could work. They could perform in the ring, Conrad. It's just that we gave them the wrong coat of paint. The other fellas, uh, Bill Irwin, uh, who you and I both, uh, are familiar with his work prior to joining the world wrestling federation. He's coming in as the goon. Another interesting idea. We're going to have a, a wrestler who is, uh, the tough guy on a hockey team and he's got specially shaped boots. This is just right out of the, the book of bad ideas. And then Alex Porto as well of the group here. My personal favorite Tracy Smothers. How about you? Oh yeah. By the, by, by far Tracy could have been a main event guy for us, 
given a better chance to survive is created because Tracy had great fire, great intensity. So fundamentally sound. He gave a shit. Tracy gave a shit every time he went out and, uh, I'll always respect him for that among other things. So yeah, Tracy was, would be my pick as, as well as Conrad on that deal. We should also mention that Kevin Kelly is coming in as an announcer and uh, Barry Windham is at least in discussion to come back. We know that's going to result in an ill-fated run as the stalker. And then we're going to try him as part of the new blackjacks. But anytime a guy like Barry Windham is looking for work, you probably try to find a spot for guys like him and Ron Simmons. What can you tell us about Kevin Kelly in this era? Uh, Kevin was brought in with the high expectations. I worked with Kevin some, uh, you know, we did, he was, he, he made his way to raw early, earlier than a lot of people envisioned that he might, a uh, great student of the game worked hard. Uh, I remember he may have got off on the wrong foot because, uh, he got into a little bit of a philosophical discussion with Kevin Dunn about how to spell Kevin Kelly's name. He wanted an EL. I, I don't know if he wanted the, uh, uh, K E L L Y and he wanted K E L L E Y it's the wrong hill to die on. Yeah. And, uh, but he, he, he endured it, uh, but it may have had some latent or everlasting effects on him, but he did it. Kevin always did a good job. He was fundamentally sound. He worked hard. He prepared hard. He cared and he still does. Kevin does a great job for, uh, you know, in a very tough world with the uh, new Japan having to do this, all this stuff remotely and on, on, on you know, to voiceovers, uh, and all those things. That's tough when you're doing voiceovers in a room and not at the arena, I can promise you that's challenging, but he does a phenomenal job. There is the voice of that brand and, and, uh, and still doing a great job. Happily married kids. Sounds good. I like Kevin. He's a good friend of mine. And I, I'm glad that he's, uh, doing what he's doing. Cause he's good at it. And, uh, but he, you know, he was just another a guy that had, we hadn't added a lot of new announcers for some time. Yeah. Like I, I came in in 93 and this was what 96. Six. Yeah. So, you know, and we're adding more shows, doing more production and we needed more voices. Vince is still staying busy in his multiple multitude of roles. So, you know, he was just on some certain shows, uh, but yeah, I thought Kevin was a good addition. I thought he'd be there a long time. He wasn't, unfortunately. Talk to me a little bit about your job here and, and what your real life duties are behind the scenes. Are, are you head of talent relations by this point or, or where is JJ in that process? Is JJ still there? I'm asking you, I don't, I don't, I don't know. The I timeline. don't remember it, As long as JJ was there. I was an assistant. So what did that look like? Just helping JJ with ideas, booking live events, uh, trying to run down issues and problems, interacting with the talents. Uh, you know, I was a lot younger than JJ at that time. So it's the talents had a, some, they felt like they had a, they could relate because I was more their age than JJ was. Uh, but it was basically helping him. I think he leaves in early 97 or perhaps it's late 96. I I always get fuzzy on when exactly it happened. I know he shows up, uh, for WCW in 97, and I don't think he was out of work for very long. 
but this is certainly in the transition era. One of the things you guys are are dealing with here uh, is Davy boy Smith. It was reported in the observer that he exercised his out clause in order to negotiate with WCW in the middle of his run on top with Shawn Michaels. Of course, this is all about money. It's always about cash. And what's the other C creative. You tell us that here on the show all the time comes down to those two C's cash and creative. And apparently Davey's not happy with the storyline involving his wife, Diana. Do you think it's more creative, more cash, or is it definitely a combination of both in this case in particular? I said the drop down would be the cash, you know, a great worker and Davey was a great worker could, uh, endure a certain amount of bad creative and make it their own, change it, tweak it, whatever. I would say it was a cash if I had to give you a guess. And quite frankly, uh, I thought it was time for him to go. I didn't, I didn't, I think we'd, it was hard to replicate the British bulldogs. They were really over. So it's harder to, to recreate that feel, that image. So I guess what I'm saying is that Davey might've been considered by some, a better tag team wrestler than a singles competitor. Uh, a lot of his fans probably would not agree with that. And I may be wrong, but I thought, I thought it might not be a bad time for him to, to have a new address. And, uh, because he, we kind of run out of things for him to do. And Davey didn't seem motivated. He seemed to be mired in his comfort zone. So, uh, but no doubt he was talented as hell. And, uh, but maybe it was just, maybe it just outstayed his welcome. I'm not sure, but I I thought it it wouldn't be a bad thing. What are we, we're not losing a red hot guy if he leaves. And, And that's not all Davey's fault. So, uh. But when Davey was on, he was motivated. He wanted to deliver the goods. He could do that as well as anybody. It's just sometimes, you know, uh, all the outside elements affected Davey more than did some other guys, the creative Diana, you know, but it comes back to the money comrade. Always will be about cash, cash and creative are the two big issues that people leave or stay. And I think in this case, it may be, have lent more to the cash than the creative with Davy boy. Talk to me about rad Radford, uh, the, the Louis Piccoli character that we all got to see a little bit of in ECW and WCW. He had a brief run here as rad Radford and he's given the release. Uh, he's a young guy here. Very young. What is it about his presentation that doesn't really work for the chairman? Do you recall? Uh, alleged, uh, substance abuse. Okay. What killed him? Yeah. That's what killed him. Conrad. Yes, sir. So yes, it was a concern. And so why'd you hire him? I don't know. He had, he had, I didn't know his issues had already reared their head here by this. Yeah. Well, not to the extreme, not to the extent that they would eventually, but yeah, they were, they were prevalent. He still, he had those issues. It, maybe he had them quote unquote under control or I can handle this deal or whatever scenario, but, uh, but certainly a talented kid. And as you said, he was young. He's the kind of young kid, uh, really a, a mark for the business. Nothing wrong with that either. By, by the way, I still am myself. Uh, but it, he didn't, he didn't have the. 
I remember one time Shawn Michaels saying, what a stupid name. What a dumb gimmick. What if that, what if my name was Mike Michaels? <laughs> That's Sean being Sean, but, uh, I don't know that rad had a lot of friends in high places to keep the, to insulate him from, uh, the heat or any stupid thing. He may say at catering or things like that. Uh, there were just little issues there that, uh, were unfortunate for him, but not a bad hand at all. And as young as he was, we got him straightened out on the right gimmick. He could have been extremely good. Let's talk about, uh, Dick Murdoch. Uh, he passes away here June 15th at the very young age of just 49 years old. Any good Dick Murdoch stories you can share with us? Oh yeah. You know, Dickie's one of my favorite guys. Uh, so we're after a show in new Orleans, I got a, I have a van and Murdoch Murdoch liked to drive my van. So consequently he rode, I rode with in my van down by the river. Uh, with Dickie. And so we're going down to bourbon street after the show's over. We go in this club. And of course he's a, as he would say on my C CB radio, uh, he was the territory's number one baby face. That's what, that was his handle. 10, four territory's number one baby face here. He did that to screw with bill. Uh, cause he was Texas and Texan and. Cowboy was the anointed baby face, the big Oklahoma cowboy, blah, blah, blah. So go to this bar and, uh, have a, some drinks, obviously. And this lady comes over and sits with us and is really, uh, shining up to old Dick. I didn't mean to sweat sounded, but you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, so, so Dickie, uh, oh, he's all over her. And, and she's, she's statuesque, man. She's like six, two, I bet. Uh, and all that. So, uh, she excuses herself to go to the facilities and he's now he's cutting his little promo to me. I'm a, Hey, here's what we'll do. You know, here's the plan B. Uh, we'll just stay here tonight and I'll get her to come to my hotel. Blah, blah, blah. If that's all right with you, I don't, we don't need to drive. I'm tired anyway. Okay. Whatever Dickie. So you're not going to convince him. Otherwise you're not going to talk Dickie out of, out of sex. And I didn't want to be the guy that had that task. So anyway, uh, as he is, uh, describing his, uh, fantasy with this woman, he says, man, he's been drinking a lot of beer, uh, like by the pitcher, out of the pitcher. And he goes, he says, I gotta, I gotta take a leak. So he goes to the bathroom and I, and about that time. I hear a gasp and a pop and, uh, and all kinds of activities going on. And here he comes and he says, get the hell out of here. I, I thought he might've killed this person, but what happened was when Murdoch went into the men's room, there she was in her full glory. It was a man. Okay. So we leave to go get our park, the van down by the river. And he says, we're walking fast, fast, fast walk. And she he stops all of a sudden, grabs me by the shirt. He said, if you ever tell anybody this story, I will kill you. 
Well, until he died, I didn't tell that story. <laughs> I was radio silence with the, and certainly not at the arena with the boys, you know, he had to protect his gimmick and his image. So what he did, he just knocked this, he saw that this was a female, uh, I don't know if it's a female impersonator or a transgender. I don't know what, and I'm not being flippant here. I don't know what, what that person considered themselves, but he just knocked her ass out or his ass out colder than a wedge down I, goes Frazier. Wow. And, uh, but Dickie was just a crazy son of a bitch. You know, he, he's a member of the clan. Oh my gosh. You, know, you didn't know that. Well, listen, I heard there were whispers and there were, there were rumors, but you can confirm them. This well, is I can, a, all I can confirm. He had a clan card. Oh my. So holy cow, dude, this was not a great person. <laughs> I know sometimes he wasn't, he was lovable and friendly and fun, but he had some strange beliefs. You know, I remember going to this nice restaurant and I, 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 he ordered for me. Cause he's taking me under his wing. Right. So he ordered some, we had one of the side items was we had broccoli. He said, you got to eat broccoli with mayonnaise. Oh, so, so he had them bring out this big dollop oh, of mayonnaise. Oh, God. Yeah, I know, but that was, that was Dickie. So he was, uh, but let me tell you something. When he wanted, when he was on working wise, he was fabulous, fabulous. If he had been more Dickie Murdoch had been more reliable and less of pain in the ass. Uh, if so, not so politically incorrect, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he would probably be in the NWA champion. That's how good he was, but then the promoters would go for it because they knew Dickie. He's not the kind of guy he's, he's, it's not a good role for him. Right. You know, cause especially in that era when you had guys like the, you know, Jack Briscoe and Dory and Terry, and all these old pros that were reliable. Uh, it was just, he just, uh. He wasn't, you couldn't trust him in that respect. If you did, I remember him telling me one time, uh, he was late for so many shots, all this stuff. And cowboy ran a pretty stiff ship on red last Dick Murdoch story here. And he says, uh, so he finds Dickie Murdoch, everything he makes, but a dollar. So for a whole week's work and it was a good week, uh, but he was late every night and just defiant, but flaunting in cowboy's face. So cowboy find him. Every dollar he would have earned, but one. So he got a check for $1 for his week's work. Wow. And, uh, I was in the, I was with him when he, when he got his check, I'm, I'm not even delivered a check. I'm not sure. Coming from Oklahoma in the office. And he said, well, I got this figured out. This is going to, he thinks he's smart kid. I said, yeah, he's pretty smart. No, here's what's going to happen. You know how meticulous he is. He's just whatever. He didn't know how to say he's anal or whatever, but he's meticulous. He's not going to, he's the kind of guy that has to have every no account for every dime. So what I'm going to do Conrad is I'm not going to ever cash this check. And as long as I never cash this check, his bank account will never be balanced. <laughs> it will drive him wild to find out where this dollar is. That's tremendous. Yeah. And as I remember the story. Uh, he took that check and framed it and put it into his, uh, infamous bar in, uh, Amarillo called Dick's dive. It was, it was, it was a, in a frame on the wall. So that was Murdoch in a nutshell. 
I, I, the last thing I'll say is that he got into a red hot program with killer Carl Cox, who was like a mentor to Dickie and probably fundamentally is, was as good a heel as I ever saw uh, killer Carl Cox and Murdoch was too, when he wanted to be, but on the, they had this angle going and Murdoch pushes, uh, Cox or Cox pushes Murdoch back in the corner. And, uh, I'm on the left side cause both guys are right-handed. I'll get away from their dominant arm as a referee. And, uh, so Murdoch's doing his shimp routine. He had a routines in all these different characters in life and shimp of the three stooges was one of them. He'd do the little thing or he'd spin around on his arm or he'd do this old deal. You know, this Cox didn't play that game. Homie didn't play that. So Cox hit that son of a bitch with a six inch punch. Boom. And, and Cox said to me, I'm standing there, grab him, grab him. So I got under one arm and Cox got in because Cox didn't want Dickie to take a bump. What time? So he said, quit fucking around. I'm trying to make money here. Dickie quit fucking around. And then Murdoch snapped out of it like he came out of a trance, like a hypnotic trance. And they proceeded to have the damnedest match you'd ever want to see. So he was a character to say the very least. And, uh, and, and he had, everybody's got Murdoch stories. I got some unique ones. Obviously you just heard a couple of them real quickly, but, uh, he was when he wanted to be great. He could be as great as anybody out there. He just, he just was a, he was just crazy. If it was the night he wanted to work, he's going to, he's going to work your ass. If it's the night he wanted to play, unless you're somebody like Carl Cox, who command his attention. That's what you're going to get. Let's talk about business before we get to the show. Monday night raw would beat nitro in the ratings for the last time on June 10th. And then that famous or maybe infamous 83 week streak of nitro wins begins. Um, did you have any idea at the time? Obviously nobody knew what the NWO was going to become, but did you think, boy, this whole hall and Nash thing could be the tipping point for them? Not really. I didn't, uh, I thought it would be good for them tipping point. I'm not so sure. Uh, I, I didn't know it would ignite the fire to the level that it did. Nobody, and, did. Uh, nobody could yeah. know that. Yeah. So, uh, with that said, uh, I just thought it was two guys leaving and get a whole lot of money. They're going to work less dates, et cetera, et cetera. And they got themselves a good deal. And, uh, my concern was more along the lines of they're going to be really, they meaning Scott and, and Kevin, right. They're going to be very, uh, active in talking to their buddies, primarily Shawn Michaels, because you had to believe that what a feather in the cap it would be if Hall and, and Nash were able to convince Sean when his contract ended to come work, come with them and play and work and all that good stuff. So I thought that would be the very issue is who, who else it might affect and not denigrating their work. It's just that they, they made a bigger impact and, and they were booked. Well, they were made to be special. They did the deal. Didn't seem to be rushed. The only time that that started, the only time I felt a little relief was when the NWO started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. 
And it, so it's just more watered down in my opinion, as a fan watching the replays on Monday nights at midnight, which we did a lot, or I did a lot, uh, after all, uh, I thought that, uh, you know, but they just, that, that they were booked really well. And they did take, they, and they, they did it so episodically sound, sound that I couldn't wait to see what they're doing next week. Not with everybody on the card. I didn't want to watch the whole show. I just wanted to watch Hall and Nash and see what their shenanigans were going to lead them to. But no, I didn't have the, I didn't have the vision to say these guys are saviors and, 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 and they were until they got into another watered down act. They had guys in the NWO that didn't need to be there. And so the bigger it got, the more it. It, uh, the edge kind of waned and it sunk a little bit to me, but, uh, they were this, they were, they were big. They were, I don't know if Eric could have had any bigger gifts. Maybe you can make the argument obviously for Hogan, but when Hogan Hall and Nash for the NWO, that was all they needed. They didn't need six or eight other guys, right? They got the six or eight other guys. So those guys could do the jobs. Well, there you go. Let's jump into the show while we're here. It's a uh, King of the ring. 1996, the wrestling observer readers gave it 84.3% thumbs up only 8.6% thumbs in the middle and 7.1% thumbs down. The show's a sellout 8,762 fans paying a gate of $142,568. Uh, the prior year's King of the ring, the infamous Philadelphia show drew a much bigger crowd. 14,181 fans paying a big 311 grand, but still as bad as that show is remembered, it's important to note for the context, because as Eric says on 83 weeks, all the time context is King, the most recent pay-per-view, which was in your house, beware of dog only had a $63,000 house. So that's where we are. By the way, I want to remind you King of the ring 95 did 180,000 buys. We're down here in 96 to 158,000 buys. So it's, it's fascinating to look into the WWF business in that it seems like houses are up. We're selling out. We're setting records at the Rosemont, but it's not exactly translating to pay-per-view buys. Now, going back, whenever I, I talk to folks who've been in the, around the business for a long, long time, Jim, they'll say, well, summer was a tough draw in the wrestling business. Do you subscribe to that? Oh, uh, not as fervently as they do. Okay. If you got what they want to see, then the fans will come. Uh, they come on holidays. They come in the summer. They come in the winter. If the product is hot and something is topical and you can mo move the needle to the extent that one will get off their couch, get in their car, drive to the arena, buy a ticket, come sit down. Uh, if it's what they want to see, they'll do it. But I will say that with people, you know, you can, you can go back and say, well, families are traveling. The kids are out of school. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of mobility there. People are doing things, but I always thought that played into our hand. If kids are out of school, that means they ain't got to go to school the next day. So those house shows in the middle of the week has no excuse not to draw. Cause maybe mom and dad got to go to work, but the kids are not going to school. So I, I'm a big believer that our business is, is, got, is so unique that if you do have a hot main event, and that's what it's got to be a hot main event with a baby face, they believe in and a heel that they truly believe can beat this individual, 
then uh, uh, you're you're going to be okay. But it it has some it it does have uh, some daunting issues. And I'm not just denigrating or, or saying negative shit about somebody that thinks the summertime is a kiss of death. It can be any month can be the kiss of death. If you don't have what the audience wants to see. Let's get to, uh, the show itself. Uh, you're in a three man booth here with Vince McMahon and Owen Hart. How'd you like working with Owen? Could he have made a good loved it, Conrad, uh, Owen and I worked also worked a show together in South Africa. That's right. It exists someplace and it was really an underrated show. And we discovered how talented he was in that area as well. He had a great future ahead of him as a broadcaster. If he had chosen to go that route and he had not had the tragedy that, that killed him, uh, Owen really talented and he was a real good analyst. I thought I, he was fun. He was controversial. He had good timing, all the skills, the skill set that he took to the ring as far as when to do this, when to do that, understanding the psychology of a match, uh, he did real well and he would, his, and he did it with hardly any training I mean, any practice practice. We're talking about practice, Robert Ivers. So, uh, people said, who's that Google is son of a bitch. He's a basketball player. It's pretty good to crossover dribble. He invented it. Uh, so, uh, I think, I think yeah, our Owen, listeners know who Alan Iverson is. I think, uh, what's that? I think everybody listening to this is probably my age and they know Alan Iverson. Everybody in Alabama knows how Alan Iverson is. Well, everybody listening to this show in Alabama. Does. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll defer to your, your wisdom. Let's and, get, to, uh, let's get to the matches here, man. How about this show starting off with something that could have derailed everything. Steve Austin's going to wrestle Mark Marrow and they have a pretty good match here. Meltzer gave it three and three quarter stars and said it was a great effort by both wrestlers. They get a ton of time, nearly 17 minutes. And there's a big Sable chant early on, which is maybe one of the first times we would see that. Of course, we know she's going to be a, uh, a big star. Austin's going to dominate a lot of the match. And there is a moment where there's an accident and all of a sudden Marrow accidentally kick Steve in the lip and he's cut in a pretty major way. And he's bleeding from the mouth. Uh, they try some other big stuff, including a drop kick off the top and a Frankensteiner off the top and a somersault, uh, plancha and a tope over the top and all these crazy athletic moves from the wild man, Mark Merrow. But ultimately, uh, it's, uh, it's the stone cold stunner that gets the win. Right. But immediately we have to be a little panicked. The guy we want to win this thing is hurt and bleeding like a stuck pig. As they say here in the South from the mouth. So he's going to go get 16 stitches at the, well, I guess you couldn't say hospital back then at a medical facility. What do you remember about this match and how it almost derailed the whole doggone thing? I remember that Austin did like work with the marrow. Yeah. Never, never did. I was surprised. They went 17 minutes. I thought they had a very good match. Mark Merrill tried his hardest to, uh, facilitate to Austin's elevation. Uh, the busted lip was a, just a, it was a stroke of, uh, un- misfortune, but at the end of the day, it, it was a great visual, uh, anybody that knew Austin and knew that the fact that he's going to win the King of the ring, that he'll get, he'll go get sewed up, stitched up, but it wasn't going to be over. Uh, so I didn't have any issues that, oh my God, what are we going to do now? Uh, they, well, luckily enough, the medical facility 
<laughs> better known as the Robert Iverson medical facility. Cause everybody knows who Robert Iverson is, uh, said, uh, they got him in, sewed him up, sent him back across the street. And there he was. So I, I don't know. I, I, it was just a real good, good opener, and, but nothing was going to deny Austin that night busted lift or not 16 stitches or not. You knew he'd be back. It's a, uh, it's a big moment. And I got to think in hindsight, this is probably Mark Marrow's best match in the whole company. Would you disagree with that? Like, I don't think he ever had a better match with the WWF than this one. I can't recall one. Yeah. I agree with you. It's also, by the way, uh, an important match because at this point, just like we talked about Vader recently ending the winning streak of Ahmed Johnson, handing Ahmed his first pinfall loss. This is the first time Mark Merrow has lost since he's debuted after WrestleMania. So it's a big deal uh, that Steve yep. Austin gets the win here. Next up, a match that's well, not as good. Jake Roberts, who at this point is a babyface, as you recall, he's wrestling with a shirt and he's got the big yellow snake, and we're naming it Revelations. Uh, now he's turned his life over to God and he's cleaning sober and he's talking about his challenges and he beats Vader by DQ. Uh, Vader's going to jump Roberts early and just pound on him. Uh, Roberts hits the DDT and on the way down, Vader grabs the ref who went down in a very unconvincing spot and calls for the DQ. Meltzer would say the finish was supposed to be more convincing, although it was a weak finish either way. After the match, Vader attacked Roberts and gave him a Vader bomb with the storyline being that it's damaged Jake's ribs. Man, this is sort of a weak way to protect Vader. And I feel like we're back to what you were talking about earlier. Well, goddamn! If they can't lose, how about not put them in there? Yeah. Uh, but once upon a time, man, going down with the DDT was not a shameful thing. Everybody went down with the DDT, right? Yeah, you could have worked a lot of finishes there. You could have brought a chair in the ring and got DDT on the chair to give it a little bit of extra juice. Uh, here's the here's the real issue. The real issue is that we knew that Jake was going to be facing Austin. We knew that Austin was going to be our focal point of this, of this, uh, tournament. How much favor did we do Austin by having his future opponent win by DQ a flat finish. So then Jake had to regroup. He had no momentum going into that match with Austin. And, uh, and as, as they, as they said, Austin three sixteen says, I just whipped your ass. So, uh, you, we could have done a better job setting the table for Austin's win. And his eventual King of the Ring uh accolade. But uh that's thinking a match ahead or two, and we didn't we didn't sometimes did do a great job of that. And again, this was for uh this was for to protect Leon. Right. And I, I'm just not big on that protecting shit. You know, you're you're a talented guy, you get you're making a lot of money, you've had you got a great reputation. You should be able to figure out a way that you could lose because Leon wasn't, oh, oh, you know, he wasn't undefeated, but, uh, again, that Japanese element and protecting their money in Japan, uh, was made to be a bigger deal than it, than it should have been. In my opinion, next up, we see the smoking guns retain their WWF tag team titles, defeating the Godwins in 10 minutes and 10 seconds. Meltzer would say basically no heat at all, except for reactions to Sonny. The finish would see Bart hit Phineas with his cowboy boot to allow Billy to pin him star in a quarter. Uh, you and I have talked a lot about the smoking guns and the Godwins individually. Is this, 
are these gimmicks just sort of, uh, outdated by the summer of 96, do you think? Maybe, uh, Bob, you know, you can make an argument for that, but they're following, they're in the midst of a tournament, uh, where they were placed. And I don't know how hot, uh, both teams were coming into that match, but I, I don't recall any smoking guns and goblins match that weren't, that wasn't competitive and entertaining to some degree. Oh, they're all capable performers for sure. Yeah. But they just, it was placed in a tough spot to get noticed and make people care. People cared about the tournament. They could see now what's going on and they wanted that tournament to continue, but you had to have some other things on the card as well. So unfortunately, uh, the guns and the Godwins drew a short straws where the match was placed, but they always had a solid match. It's just at that point in time, didn't mean as much as everybody wanted it to. I wish we could say the same thing about the next match. It's ultimate warrior and Jerry Lawler. They go three minutes and 50 seconds. Meltzer gave it a dud rating. And here's what he had to say. Ultimate warrior pinned Jerry Lawler in three fifty after some pathetic clotheslines and a shoulder block with warrior shoulder injury. They don't want to risk him doing the press slam right now. Lawler did a great comedy monologue, insulting individual fans as he came to the ring and the jokes were all older than Lawler himself. They're the same <laughs> lines he's been delivering for 15 years, but he did a great job of getting the crowd going. Lawler jumped warrior during his pre-match routine and kept on him until hitting a pile driver, which warrior did the no sell on and went right to the finish dud boy. This is, uh, this is sort of the warriors run here in 96 in a time capsule here. Right. And I'm like, this is exactly what it was in and out fans are just sort of there for it. He's no longer going to be positioned as world champion. He's positioned as an attraction, but it's just sort of there for me. What say you? Yeah, it's pretty much the same Conrad. You know, it, it also proved that Terry law could have a match with anybody. That's true. And, uh, that's why they were booked that way. You know, Lawler was, and Lawler, you start to think about, it, you know, King Jerry Lawler, you know, King of the ring and yeah. all, hey, you never know, you never know. So I thought it was a better match than it may perhaps deserved to be based on the competitors. But again, the un, un, undoubtedly it showed that Lawler could, had the skill set to work with anybody, you know, that's why Lawler was put in the ring with a lot of guys over those that, you know, I think Lawler had this, had one of the first matches with Mark Henry. And because Mark was so green and he needed somebody to, to steer him in the right direction. And Lawler was that guy, but Lawler had made a living doing that, working with, uh, people not as talented as he, uh, in Memphis. So Jerry was just, just that good. People don't realize how good a worker Lawler was because, uh, his biggest exposure, uh, the biggest, uh, with the most eyeballs was on raw, uh, as a color guy as a color broadcaster, but he did a hell of a job there. And you know, they got through it. I guess that's all I can say. Next up, maybe the show stealer of the whole night, mankind and undertaker go three and a quarter stars. According to Dave Meltzer in an 18 minute and 21 second affair that has mankind beating the undertaker with the mandible claw. Now this is important to recognize the context of this. The undertaker has lost matches but not a ton that are in convincing fashion that are clear cut that are clean, whatever sort of descriptor you want to use. There's usually some shenanigans going on. 
Yeah. Uh, and here is the write-up from the observer undertaker was more aggressive than usual. Since he was doing the job, a wild stiff match with the only negative being that it went too long. Paul bear got it back. Finally, bear went to hit mankind with the urn, but he moved and hit undertaker mankind. Then used the claw and got the submission. win. fans were basically shocked by the finish, it's gutsy to have a baby face icon lose in such a convincing fashion, especially to a strong gimmick guy. But when they did it at WrestleMania 10 with Brett and Owen, it led to some of the rematches that drew the biggest houses in a long time. And that's going to be the case. You and I recently talked about mankind's 96, uh, and, and how his feud with the undertaker really helped put him on the map. They're going to set the woods on fire. It's going to lead to the, uh, the undertaker, Paul bear split just a couple of months after this, but this is sort of page one of an incredible rivalry between these two. Would we agree? Well, the thing about it is, is that, uh, undertaker knew where his bed bread was buttered. He knew that he had a potential great opponent for quite some time, uh, and a fresh opponent, which is why we hired, uh, Mick to begin with undertaker needed new dancing partners. I find it somewhat ironic and a head scratcher. We can figure out ways to beat undertaker. We can't figure out a way to beat Vader. We can't figure out a way to, to get Ahmed, you know, that, that there's so many guys protected. And I think taker probably was one of those guys that said, you know, what the hell are we doing? Nobody can lose. I'll show you how to lose. And it worked. And like you said, it, it launched a, a really good program Yeah, that, that was ongoing for quite some time. Go out of your way to watch this match. It's probably the show stealer. I understand Meltzer saying, ah, oh, it's probably a little long and maybe it was, but it's really impressive when, you know, this guy debuted the day after WrestleMania. And now here we are getting a clean win over the undertaker. Next up it's Ahmed Johnson and Goldust. Uh, Goldust is the intercontinental champion. Of course, you may remember he's got the belt all painted up gold. And, uh, Meltzer would say Johnson started out aggressively and Goldust was good in putting him over. Uh, he even did a running dive over the top rope and came up short and nearly landed on his head. He threw the ring steps at Goldust, but missed him by a mile. Goldust threw the steps on Johnson and worked on his back. The match got slow in the middle. At one point there was a screw up as Johnson was in a sleeper and the ref checked his hand and it went down three times, which should be the finish. After a weak pile driver, Johnson started rubbing and fondling on Johnson. I think, I think, uh, Meltzer meant Goldust. Uh, after a sleeper Goldust kissed Johnson again, and that triggered the Superman comeback and Johnson got the win with the Pearl river plunge. So two stars, but now Ahmed Johnson is the intercontinental champion. You had, uh, recently Bruce and I talked about the fact that we both thought perhaps Ahmed was in line to be world champ. One day he was over with the crowd, had a great look for whatever reason he had it. And this feels like sort of step one. Yeah, there was that talk. Yeah, because that's how impressive he he looked, and uh, was believable, and his ethnicity didn't hurt him either. Uh, To have a black uh, WWE champion, WWF champion, uh, is due. Time was there, but you know, again, the he Ahmed didn't realize when you can't you drop your arm three times, it's over. Right. There are things that he needed to catch up on as far as this basic, uh, psychology, but there was some discussion at some point, this guy looks like a champion. Look at him. 
intensity, the look on his face, his facial expressions, his body. Uh, so there was some casual discussion, but I wouldn't frame it to be anything more than that. At least in my take casual discussion, really fun match, uh, to look back in, in, in both of these guys' careers and Ahmed Johnson now intercontinental champ. Uh, next up, we're going to see Brian Pillman come out on crutches to do an interview. He's doing his loose cannon persona and he passes Austin in the aisleway. And they yeah. just sort of stare at each other, but they don't acknowledge it on commentary. But of course, longtime wrestling fans remember, Hey, wait a minute on another channel. Those guys were tag partners, but it is a nice little subtle thing. Do you remember whose idea that would have been? Because I loved it as a kid. Uh, well, you know, you got two great minds there with, uh, Brian and Steve. So it could have been either guy or, or a, uh, combination of both, but something like that probably was more might've been because of what it was, what we were doing. I'll try to explain this better that, uh, it might've been Brian's idea. This is what Brian had on the show. Austin still had to wrestle. So maybe Brian just thinking of other ways just to season up this dish a little bit and create, cause we didn't, we didn't comment on it in, on purpose. We've pretense. We, we, uh, we've laid out purposefully. So, uh, I would, if I had to, if I had to guess, and I don't know, I'd say it probably was Brian's idea that he probably pitched to Steve. All they got to do is look at each other and let the, let the rumors and the stories and all that stuff start. Uh, but it was timely. It's pretty cool deal. We should mention, uh, the reason they're passing each other in the hall like this is Austin is on his way to the ring for the King of the ring finals against Jake, right. the snake Roberts. And the storyline is that Jake's working on badly injured ribs, but in reality, it's Steve who's hurting pretty bad. Um, Meltzer would note that the stitches were done backstage, not in the hospital as was said on television, but I've heard over the years, that was not the case. He actually did leave the building to get the stitches. Do you recall? Yeah, that's my, I'm uh, sorry, Connor. That's my understanding as well. So Austin works on the ribs for Jake for about three minutes and gorilla comes out to stop the match and Jake is begging him to let it go, which of course gorilla does. And, uh, at some point they get a lot of heat and Roberts makes a big comeback before being cut off and then stone cold stunner. And that's all she wrote melts word, right. And did a strong post-match interview, knocking Roberts religion and drinking problems, half a star. You know what? Let's just go ahead and listen to it. We'll take a listen. The fourth prestigious King of the Ring, Stone Cold Steve Austin, an incredible victory. The first thing I want to be done is to get that piece of crap out of my ring. Don't just get him out of the ring, get him out of the WWF. Because I proved, son, without a shadow of a doubt, you ain't got what it takes anymore. You sit there and you thump your Bible and you say your prayers and it didn't get you anywhere. Talk about your Psalms, talk about John 3.16. Austin 3.16 says I just whipped your ass. Come on, that's not necessary. All he's got to do is go buy him a cheap <laughs> bottle of Thunderbird and try to dig back some of that courage he had in his prime. As the king of the ring, I'm serving notice to every one of the WWF superstars. 
I don't give a damn what they are. They're all on the list. And that Stone Cold's list. And I'm fixing to start running through all of them. As far as this championship match is considered, son, I don't give a damn if it's Davey Boy Smith or Shawn Michaels. Steve Austin's time has come. And when I get the shot, you're looking at the next WWF champion. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. Man, a lot of signature stuff there, Conrad. Yeah, man, because Stone Cold said so. But of course, Austin 316, man. Shirt. Shirt. (laughs) He sold a lot of those 316 shirts. And ironically, they're still selling. Isn't that funny? It's, you know, it's one of those deals where when it hits, it hits. And it's so fascinating when you look back at 1996 and we just mentioned a minute ago, you guys have won your last ratings war. Uh, Nitro is going to go on that streak for 83 weeks and it's because of the NWO. So this is the, as we're talking now in 2021, the 25th anniversary of not only Austin 316, but the NWO, I don't think the importance of 1993 can be overstated or 1996 can be overstated. Uh, agreed. Agreed. A lot, a lot of things were born out of that, that made, uh, WWE a lot of money. Uh, and you know, as much money as Steve made on that t-shirt, you know, the, the office made more. Oh yeah. They did fine. So, uh, financial hit. You know, uh, Michael Hayes facial expression was, uh, priceless. Yes. Cause he had no idea that line was coming. Right. It wasn't scripted. Right. You know, Austin didn't do scripts. So, uh, it was good. It was really good. And it, it's so monumental in so many fronts, but Austin was anointed at that point in time. You heard the crowd respond when he said he's going to be the next champion and that's great market research. So it was a very successful tournament in that respect. In your book, you talk about how Steve came to you after the show and said his year to date money wasn't what he thought it should be. And, uh, you go directly to Vince and Vince agrees to a number and you let Steve know, Hey, I'm ripping up the contract and getting you a new one. How soon after this show does all that happen? Immediately. Okay. You know, what's there to think about? Yeah. Uh, we had all of our answers. We had our guy. So, uh. No, it, it worked out, uh, uh, you know, it worked out fine and it was time to keep your talent happy. Again, Vince becoming more talent aware. We talked about this, Connie. Yes. Uh, and here's our guy that was going to be our, the it guy for, for what we thought the years to come. And it was to some degree until Steve got hurt, but, uh, it was just good stuff, man. It was just, and why not? And you look at this year to date, cause how he was booked and positions on the card. He probably was undervalued at, at that point in time. Right. But you know, uh, so, but we didn't wait till the contract ended. We didn't wait till this recycle this or that we, we went right for it. And, and he was, a he was a, appreciative of it because he got the respect from the office that he had been looking for in every company that he ever worked for. Just respect me for what I do. And I'm a wrestler. And so he got that respect. We wanted to make sure that he knew he was appreciated and we sure as hell wanted to keep him happy. Let's talk a little bit about the importance of the moment. Do you think this Austin three sixteen promo, I mean, is it up there with, you know, Hulk Hogan beating the iron sheet to become world champion? I mean, is it a top five all time WWF moment? Do you think probably based on where Austin took it, right? 
the merch he sold, you know, he eventually just not too long, too many years after that, I, I remember he may have had bigger years, but he had one year where he made $13 million. He's making over a million dollars a month. So I suggest strongly that it was the right thing to do. And it was pivotal and, and the growth of the brand leading into the attitude era. And, and I was dare say to the company going public as well. Let's, uh, let's get to our main event. And this is quite the match. Uh, even though I love the undertaker mankind match because of what it would go on to be this Shawn Michaels, Davy boy is an underrated main event. It feels like everybody talks about Austin three sixteen, and that's pretty much it. But the deal here is Mr. Perfect comes out as referee and they're teasing that he's going to be a heel ref throughout the show. He's even been dressing in Jim Cornette's team's dressing room. And he has some choice words with Shawn Michaels earlier in the show. And Gorilla Monsoon comes out and says that Mr. Perfect is going to be the outside the ring ref and that Earl Hebner would be the referee in the ring. Meltzer would say the first 18 minutes of the match consisted of bulldog holding Michaels generally in a headlock, working high spots off of that headlock. And at one point, Sean went for a power slam and Smith reversed it into one of his own, but Michaels gets behind him, goes for the super kick. Davey blocks it and hits a clothesline. Uh, Meltzer would continue the last few minutes were one near fall after another until the dreaded Hebner bump. So that's like number three, I think on the night. Michaels does an elbow off the top and a terribly weak looking super kick. Perfect jumps in to make the count as did Hebner perfect. Stop counting at two, but Hebner counted three for the win. And after the match, uh, Owen Hart, who was wearing a cast hit the ring and Shawn Michaels basically beat up both guys for a while until they got the two on one on him. And then, uh, Ahmed Johnson comes in and then here comes Vader. Cornette is going to hit Jose Lothario with the tennis racket. Owens has Michaels with the cast. And finally warrior comes in, slams Vader off the top. The heels run off and we're essentially setting up our main event for the next in your house, which is international incident on July 21st in Vancouver. Meltzer loved the match though, and gave it four and a quarter stars. I think you could argue that Davey had some of his best matches in the WWF with Sean and Brett. This was no exception, right? No, no. And it proved that Davey could do it as often as he wanted to. Yeah. Uh, some, some people, uh, had a, my, had issues with Davey that he didn't turn it on all the time and, and he was really, really good. So when you, when somebody allows their performance to slip down a notch, uh, it's more noticeable because Davey was that good, but, uh, yeah, he, Davey, Davey was motivated. Uh, you know, that alpha male ego is a strange cat. And, uh, Davey knew that go that Sean wasn't going to slow down. Sean was going to phone anything in called Sean, Sean. And, uh, I, I think that, uh, Davey delivered the goods that day and he showed everybody just how, how good he could be, but can we see it all the time? Or do we have the ability to see that all that consistency? It's like, you know, seeing Bret Hart wrestle. Uh, and by the way, what a, what a great, uh, documentary recently on Bret. I thought it was good. Uh, I thought it was really well done. Uh, one of the better ones, quite frankly, uh, that Brett always delivered, but that was Brett. Brett was a different cat, man. Brett, Brett was the John Wayne guy and, uh, never, I never saw him have a bad match with anybody. Hell, I remember one time we booked him with Hakushi. Remember Hakushi Conrad, the oh, Japanese tremendous Japanese performer tattoo. Absolutely. And nobody knew it, but Brett did. Yeah. 
and Brett goes out there and makes him look like a million dollars. So, uh, that's kind of what we wanted out of Davey. Davey's a veteran experience had been around a lot of great talents over his career. Uh, his training in Calgary under in Stu Hart's territory was very valuable, but you just wanted to see it more often. It's, it's a weird show in, in hindsight, you know, because we're on the heels of, uh, in your house, beware of dog, which was a disaster because of the power outage. So we're getting another great Davey Sean match. Sean continues to have really good matches as champion. Of course, we all remember he had that phenomenal match with Kevin Nash on the heels of WrestleMania and in your house where they, they use mad dog's leg and the whole thing. So we've also got Mr. Perfect here. Who's going to be a focus character, sort of hokey pokey, like for the rest of 96 before he leaves. Uh, but it feels like there were a lot of stop and start plans for him and the ultimate warrior. In fact, it's interesting in hindsight to think this is the last pay-per-view appearance for the ultimate warrior in the WWF. And it's even crazier to think his last pay-per-view opponent is Jerry Lawler. And the last we really see of him on WWF pay-per-view is slamming Vader off the top. I like the show though. I think the overwhelming majority of the readers uh, agreed. I think the readers of the observer voted, uh, Davey and Sean as the match of the night. Hard to argue that. I just love the, uh, sort of the precursor of what would become the, the feud of the year or arguably the feud of the year with mankind and undertaker. what do you think of this show? And what was your match of the night? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. Well, I, I like the tournament. The tournament could have been a lot better if it had been booked more strategically and we weren't trying to protect so many people. Uh, I thought the undertaker putting over mankind was huge for, for Mick. It was huge for their feud and their rivalry. Uh, I like the show. Uh, I'm, I'm with you, uh, Sean and, and, uh, and Davey had a hell of a match. Great way to end the show and not an easy spot to be in Conrad. Cause my goodness, what, what, what else is there to see that we hadn't already seen in this, in this tournament and the other, uh, subsequent matches within it. So I, I like the show in that regard. Uh, I enjoyed working with Owen and, and, you know, Vince and I and Owen, you know, we didn't have Lawler there cause Lawler was in the tournament. So, uh, I had fun. It was a fun night and, uh, and a, and a, and a good time. And I thought the company delivered well, there was always the pressure on everybody to, you know, the, the, the pending challenge of WCW, uh, was not something that wasn't being thought about the talent were talking about it as well. So I think maybe it was a little extra motivator, but it seemed like everybody that had the chance and the desire to have a good match, got the opportunity to do that as far as time was concerned and, and all those things. So my only complaint would be that we, we we could have had winners and losers more prominently within the tournament. And, uh, but we didn't, but my hats off to undertaker and Mick, that was a great match. Uh, the, the last match was a great match. And, but the overriding thing, big picture wise was the fact that it launched Stone Cold and the Austin 316 brand. And it launched him in a big way. The wrestling business would never quite be the same again. Uh, one of the top selling t-shirts of all time. And even to this day, a top seller on any WWE event or website next week, we're talking about another all time. Great Terry Funk. Well, you've had a Terry Funk impression on your podcast. As long as I've been listening to your podcast way before I was on the show. Well, God damn you, Conrad. 
My show didn't mean shit until you joined my team. My brother Dory and I will take you outside and whip your ass. We can whip the Briscoes. We can whip them all. Cause we're Texans. I love Terry Funk. This show will not be objective. <laughs> I love Terry Funk. Uh, I never got to work with Terry that much until around 89 when he came to WCW and had this little, cause had this thing with flair that, and the, I quit match. I told you that it's my favorite. I quit match I've ever called sure with Terry and, and Nate, uh, again, because of all the, the side pieces, you know, the great Gary Hart, you know, uh, golly, Tommy young referee and Gordon Sully on commentary. Great memories for me, but, uh, Terry was the straw that stirred the drink there. He was just extraordinary. Uh, but this is going to be a great show. Talking about Terry Funk, it's one of the most fun things I do. Well, the most fun thing you do is grilling up some good meats over at jrsbbq.com. If you haven't already, go ahead and click the button and get the party started. Uh, even if it's a little late, dad would still love it. It is the gift that keeps on giving. You know, that's the pro tip we haven't talked about a lot this year, Jim, is if you get dad, one of your gift packages from jrsbbq.com. Yep. Not only is he going to enjoy it, he's probably going to make something that you, the youngster get to enjoy too. Right. I agree. I agree. And, and they're good quality products. You know, uh, the JR's original, which original barbecue sauce is our number one seller. And uh, it's my mother's, uh, uh, a spinoff upgraded, of my mother's barbecue sauce. You know, when I was a kid growing up, we, we smoked outside because we didn't have air conditioning in our home. And to keep the house from heating up, we did a lot of cooking outside and, and little Jimmy here's job was to make sure that the, the smoker stayed at a certain temperature. I kept the fire going all that good stuff. Uh, while mom and dad were at work, that was my chore that day. I was a little, little chef and, uh, but man, I, I just, uh, I love that sauce and, and it's uh, such an important part of my childhood and my adulthood and then Jan. Late wife Chan, they kind of adopted all those products, and we started developing the chipotle ketchup and the jalapeno honey mustard. Uh, I had a jalapeno honey mustard on a turkey sandwich last night, and it just makes the difference, all the difference in the world. I mean, you know, they got to be fancy. I had turkey, I had a tomato, and I had jalapeno honey mustard, and it was a it was a great sandwich. So, and it's pretty healthy. The the, the mustard's got like one gram of sugar or something. It's very flavorful, but it's very healthy. And so, uh, you know, we, we are proud of our family attempts to build this brand. JRSBBQ.com. Uh, we have specials every day. There, there's all, all kinds of flash sales. If you haven't registered, uh, at JRSBBQ.com to get on our mailing list, we're not, we don't share that list with anybody, Conrad. We're not looking to do that, but we do have offers that we make available to our mailing list, our, our email list before anybody else sees it. So it costs you nothing to do it. We're not going to share the, your information. You know, I'm not asking for your, your ATM number, but just register. And that way, then you're in the, you're in the hunt for, uh, uh, this information ahead of, ahead of everybody else. So jrsbbq.com. It is the grilling season. We'll be for several more months. Great gift ideas. We've had a good. We had a good uh, business during the month of June so far. 
And, uh, we appreciate everybody's support. I'm very grateful, very grateful. A lot of people are selling things online and, uh, and I'm very grateful that people take their time to, to order from us and let us service their accounts. So thank you everybody for that. We appreciate you. We do appreciate you. And we appreciate you guys tuning in today. Don't miss next week. It's all about Terry funk right here on grilling Jr. with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross heavy on the mister and have a great day, everybody. Hey everybody. This is Dan Bespris host of fantasy NBA today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day. Plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.